Good morning. There's a lot of questions in life, aren't there? A lot of questions that we face. But there's one that far, far outweighs the rest. There's one question that we never get away from, that owns us from the time that we're born until the time that we die. It defines our life in one way or the other. It's a hungry question, seeks satisfaction. What is the question? Well, it has different manifestations, but here it is, I think, boiled down at its core. How can I, a sinner, be reconciled to God? All of us have an instinctual awareness of sin. We know that it separates us from God. None of us have a a complete knowledge of it, a sufficient knowledge of it, a total knowledge of it. But all of us have knowledge of our sin. We know it's there. We feel it. We feel the weight of it. How do I know that all of us have this knowledge? How do I know that you know that you have it? How do I know that you feel it, that it keeps it up, that keeps you up at night? Well, Romans 1, chap, sorry, chapter 1, verses 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. That which is known about God. What's known about God? That he's holy. That, and in light of that, what do you know? <laughs> that you're not. That you're a sinner. God made this evident to you. And you live under his wrath. In your natural state. In Adam. You were born under God's wrath. And everybody knows this. I know that you know it. How can I, with my sin, be reconciled to a holy God when I know that I deserve only his wrath? That's the question that owns us that we never get away from. You might be sitting there thinking, now, come on, Jody. I don't struggle with that. That's not my problem. I don't have thoughts like that. If that's what you're honestly thinking right now and you're trying to convince yourself of it, you're, you're either lying to yourself. I, I, I only get on roller coasters I've only been on roller coasters maybe three or four times in my life. I hate them. I'm absolutely terrified of them. I only go on them if I, I can't escape the, you know, the peer pressure. <laughs> and the only way I can bear the experience is to lie to myself. The whole time, I just psych myself out. I pretend, this, honestly, I pretend that I am a fighter pilot that I like this kind of thing. I'm on a mission. I pretend that this is an airplane that I'm sitting in. It's not a roller coaster. I'm not, you know, 
I'm in control. That's what I pretend. I am in control of this vehicle. And it's not that I enjoy it. That doesn't give me enjoyment. It, it helps me survive. Do you understand? I'm not kidding. A lot of us... <laughs> ask me about wooden spoons later. A lot of us go through life bearing that question. How, am I a, can, how can I, a sinful man, be reconciled to God in that same way? We lie to ourselves. We convince ourselves that that doesn't bother us. It's not a big deal, you know. We think we've got our mom fooled. We think we've got our friends fooled. I know that you know. I know that it bothers you. I know that you feel the weight of sin. The Bible tells me that. You could be lying to yourself, or this is worse. You could have a dead conscience. You could have medicated your conscience or distracted yourself for so long, given yourself to sin, become so entangled in it that you just don't hear anything anymore. You could have taken so many drugs that you've just wasted your mind. It's possible to silence your conscience. And that is a terrible state to be in where you can no longer where you no longer think about God. It doesn't bother you. I know it seems weird that it should bother you, got the thought of God, but it's actually worse, believe it or not, to have no thought of God. You could be lying to yourself. A lot of us lie to ourselves. You could have a dead conscience. That is a lot of us too. Or this hopefully, is the majority of you. Or you could have had this question satisfied in God. Put to rest. Answered. There's many ways, many ways that we have to temporarily silence that question of how can I, a sinful man, be reconciled to God? To distract ourselves from it. To drown it out. But there's only one way to satisfy it. That is what we need. We need to have it satisfied. Put to rest. But how? Well, the perfectly orthodox answer is, of course, believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, was crucified. He offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. He made a once-for-all sacrifice, and the Bible tells us that we, if we believe on him, if we put our faith in him, then his blood cleanses us from all sin. We receive his righteousness. It's imputed to us. He gives us his righteousness. He takes upon himself our sin. And through faith in him, we no longer bear the penalty for sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a perfectly orthodox answer. But there's more. 
what do you mean there's more, Jody? There's, there's not more to that. Justification by faith alone. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. It's faith. And amen. But there is more. Not more like in addition to faith. There's more to faith. There's more behind it, under it, supporting it, bringing it about. On the one hand, you have a sinner who's alienated from God, separated from God by his sin. On the other hand, you have holy God, and they are infinitely far apart. How do those two things come together? How is the sinner reconciled to God? Through faith in Jesus. But what is the mechanism for creating faith in you? Is it something that you just do? What happens? There's something behind the scenes that happens. And don't worry, this something that's behind the scenes is not in conflict with faith in Jesus Christ. It's in perfect harmony with it. It's so much a part of it that according to Jesus, according to Scripture, we do not have a faith that justifies without it. Without it, we have a faith that's in vain, that's empty, that's lifeless, that is not real. So what is it? What is this thing? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see what Scripture says this is, and then we're going to answer some clarifying questions about it. First, what is it? Second, what, why do we need it? Who is it for? Who brings it about? How do you know if you have it? That's a question, I think, that's constantly on our minds. If you don't have it, what can you do to obtain it? With those questions in mind, let's turn to John chapter 3 and read the first 12 verses together. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born? Born when he is old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, 
Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, so what is the thing? What's the thing that we need that's behind faith that is creating it? You must be born again. The new birth. Salvation, as it's revealed in Scripture, is a big category. It's not a moment, more often than not, that's being talked about. It's a big category, a series of events. It's a process. More than once, Paul says, we are being saved. Salvation is a process. At the end of that process, the thing we're all looking forward to, if we hope in Christ is glorification. It's what happens when Christ Jesus returns to earth with the shout and with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised. We're caught up to meet him in the air and we be with him forever. We put on this mortal body, puts on immortality. Glorification. Christ puts an end to sin and to death and the curse for all time. And we live in new, eternal, immortal, spiritual bodies with the Lord face to face. No longer looking through a veil of tears. Face to face. Glorification. It's what we're all looking forward to. It hasn't happened yet. Prior to that is a stage of salvation called sanctification. It's a cooperative work between us and God, whereby his spirit working within us, we put to death the desires of the flesh, we fight against sin, and we're made more holy in our actual lives. It's a process itself, sanctification. From the time that you hope in Christ till you die, you're being sanctified. If you're not being sanctified... If you're not fighting against your sin, if you're not putting it to death with the help of the Spirit, then you will not be glorified. We know that. Pursue peace and the sanctification, the holiness, we're told, we're commanded. Pursue it, without which no one will see the Lord. If you won't be sanctified, then you won't be glorified. Glorification at the end. Sanctification. What's before sanctification? Justification. What's that? That's the courtroom event. When we're legally made righteous before God. Where the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. We're passive. We receive it. It happens to us. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a process has steps and stages. Is that all the sta- are is that all the stages? Is that a proper sentence? I think so. That's not it. J 
Jake just taught us that was it in Sunday school this morning, and normally that's how we talk about it. Those are the stages. Justification, we're adopted as sons of God, made righteous before him in the courtroom of eternity. Sanctification, made holy. And then glorification when Christ returns. There's something else. Something before all this that infuses it. That gives it all power. That accomplishes it. That brings it about. It's the new birth. We have to be born again. That precedes justification. It's what Jesus is teaching us here in John 3 when he says you must be born again. That's what it's called. What is the new birth? Why do we need it? Why does Jesus say that we must have it? Well, the first thing I would say is that this is an indication of how bad our spiritual condition is. That the cure should be so drastic. Think medically for a moment. Sometimes you get a much more accurate picture of your physical condition from the cure that's prescribed to you than you get from your symptoms. You go in to see the doctor because you've got some little sore on your arm maybe that won't heal. It's been bugging you and it's not healing. You go in to see the doctor and he... Jason, you have sores on your arms. (laughs) I remember that. Go to the doctor. (laughs) Could be bad. Let's say you have a sore on your arm, like Jason. You go to see the doctor. He he looks a little concerned, and he takes some samples, and he orders a CT scan, and he calls you back in the next day. The test comes come back and he says, well, I am very sorry to have to tell you this, but we need to take your arm off just below the elbow. And you're like, what? I mean, I, it's not a big deal. I just had a little sore. I only came in because, you know, my wife told me to. It was just not healing. I mean, what? And I'm very sorry. It's not a little sore. You have gangrene. And it's going to spread and, and it will kill you if we don't take your arm off. We have to do this immediately. Sometimes we get a much better picture of the depths of the problem from the cure that is given us than we do from the symptoms that we're experiencing. And that's what it's like here in a much more impressive way in John 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus presumably seeking to learn something more about the kingdom of heaven that he's heard John the Baptist and now Jesus preaching about. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Boom. He just shuts the door in Nicodemus's face. Nicodemus is, you know, an honest seeker. He's come to see Jesus. Not quite honest. He comes at night. But he's come. You don't want to discourage a seeker, right? 
So every commentator I read on this text says this is a rebuke, a strong rebuke of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you don't get it. You're dead. And if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You can sense Nicodemus' nervous shock. What do you mean, Rabbi? Born again? A man can't enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Nicodemus, you're not listening to me. You're dead. And you have to be born again. Well, how can these things be? Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand this? You're dead, Nicodemus. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom, Nicodemus, and you are not alive spiritually. You're dead. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God to see it. In other words, by shoving the cure, this very radical, extreme cure in Nicodemus' face, Jesus is exposing to him and to us the depth and the nature of our problem. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, thanks for coming. I'm glad that you're here. I, I see that you're doing, you're doing pretty well, actually. Better than most. And you've come to the right place. I, you know, I'm the guy. And, and I, just, I just think if you, if you just improve this over here, you're not quite obeying the law fully here. I don't think you realize that. Let me tell you about it. And, and all you have to do is just this little bit here. And then just a little bit over here. And I think you're sorted. You're good. No, Nicodemus, you're dead. You have to be born again. And this is exactly the picture that the rest of Scripture paints for us about our condition, isn't it? It's what it teaches us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And then verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Colossians 2, the sister book of Ephesians. Paul again, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. This is clearly not talking about physical death. The natural man is very much alive because a physically dead man cannot sin. It is a spiritual death that Paul has in view here. And it is the same death that is spoken of primarily in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you mayest freely eat, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. It was not only, but especially, spiritual death that Adam experienced when he sinned. Just as it is not only, but especially, spiritual death that we inherited from him. In Adam, all die. As sons of Adam were born dead, dead in transgressions and sins, unable to come to God. Did you hear that? Unable to come to God. Unable to obey him. Unable to please him. We're dead. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. Apart from the Holy Spirit regenerating you. You are dead, spiritually dead, unable to do the first bit of good before God. Is this death experienced by everybody or just by some of us? Another way of asking the question is, who is the new birth for? Is it necessary for everybody or for the speci- just for the especially perverse, just for the especially unwashed, just for the hippie downtown, just for the guy with the tattoos and the piercings? Is it for everybody or just for the, the dirty? Well, here's a very sweet and a very encouraging thing. I think it's no accident that Jesus ends up having this discourse with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And not with the woman at the well, and not with Matthew, the tax collector, and not with the woman caught in adultery. It's Nicodemus. A teacher of the law, a keeper of the law. Nicodemus is as righteous as they come. As squeaky clean as they come. As high and mighty as they come. As advanced in religion as they come. And yet the new birth is, is clearly just as necessary for him as it is for the most wicked, humble man. Unless a man is born again, he says. And then later, you must be born again, Nicodemus. This should be an encouragement to all of us who feel less worthy than others. To all of us who are notorious sinners. I constantly think, I was thinking this week as I prepared to preach, this this resonates in my head a lot in my work, of a quote on like page two or three of, of Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor. He says, Believe it, brothers, God never saved anyone for being a preacher. That's me. What about you? Believe it, brothers, God never saved anyone for being a prayer warrior. God never saved anyone for being a hard worker, for being... 
for being, you name it, whatever your thing is. God never saved anyone for that. There's n- I want to read you something. There's an account, this is a biography, two-volume set of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in England a while back, a hero of many of the pastors and elders and pastors' college students here in this church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great man, a great preacher. His wife said this. Well, let me, it, it gets into it. He talks and then she talks. I want you to hear what she says. This is speaking about a time when he went out into, I think, a obscure town, took over a pastorate and began preaching gospel messages, evangelistic messages. He says, speaking of the slow change in the life of the congregation, Dr. Lloyd-Jones recorded, it took some time. I was there from February to July without a single conversion. The first conversion was in July, and that was not a striking one. Then we went away on holiday. After we had come back, E.T. Rees was converted on the first Sunday in October, and that that did seem to start something. It went on from there. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones knew that more was happening even in 1927 than was apparent, for his own wife had come into a state of concern and conviction. Having attended church, listen to this, this could be you, having attended church and prayer meetings from childhood, Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones had always believed that she was a Christian. Not until she heard Martin preach preach for the first time on his second visits to Sandfields in December of 1926 was she confronted in his sermon on Zacchaeus with an insistence that all men are equally in need of salvation from sin. Just what we were just talking about. All men are equally in need of salvation. The message shook her, even frightened her, and she almost resented the teaching which appeared to place her in the same condition as those who had no religion at all. In a sense, she had always feared God. Her life was upright, and yet she knew that she had no personal consciousness of the forgiveness of sins, no sense of inward joyful communion with Christ. In Mrs. Lloyd-Jones' own words, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought, I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remember how I used to rejoice to see drunkards become Christians and envy them with all my heart. Because there they were, full of joy and free. And here I was in such a different condition. I recall sitting in the study at uh, 57 Victoria Road and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin. And I shall always remember Martin saying as he looked through his books, read this. He gave me John Engel James's The Anxious Inquirer directed. I have never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. 
His death was well able to clear all my sins away. There, at last, I found release, and I was so happy. It could be anybody. If it can be Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, it could be me, it could be you. Lacking regeneration, lacking life, vitality, joy in the Lord, communion and fellowship with Christ. Who is the new birth for? It's for you. It's for everyone. It's a must. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, it's for you. Don't trust your eyes. That's the point here. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And here's what God, who looks on the heart, says. God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there was anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what God sees. And none of us wants to admit this about ourselves. We grate against this doctrine of depravity. Our flesh hates it. Even those of us who have accepted it and embraced it, studied it, learned to treasure it, because of how much it exalts God for him to be the sole giver of salvation. Even those of us who love it, hate it. It goes against everything about our nature. There is none who does good, not even one. We hate to hear those words. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is a statement about our natural inability to choose God. We are unable to come to him, unable to please him, because we are dead by nature. Which brings us to the next question. If we're dead in trespasses and sins, if we're dead in trespasses and sins, unable to choose God, unable to please him, unable to come to him, then... How on earth does this new birth happen? Who brings it about? Who accomplishes it? Well, we read just a minute ago that it is God who brings it about, didn't we? Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. When you were dead in your transgressions, Colossians 2, he made you alive. It's God and God alone who brings about the new birth. Yet not so much God in the general as the Holy Spirit in particular. Look at John 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter 
into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Nicodemus. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Of the spirit. Here we see that it is the Holy Spirit, not the decision of your will, who brings about the new birth. And yet we're not compliant little robots who haven't any will of our own. We have a will and it is involved in the process of salvation. So what is going on here? Do we have a will or not? What's going on here is that in the new birth... In the new birth, the human will, your will, which was previously so marred by sin and corruption that it could only choose evil continually, is being miraculously, supernaturally restored to its original pre-fall perfection, thereby ensuring that we will respond to the gospel call. In faith. The Holy Spirit in the new birth is restoring your will. This is what the Canons of Dort. Have you ever heard of that? The Canons of Dort? Dutch Calvinists back in the Reformation. That's what they called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace refers to the fact that God effectively calls people and also gives them regeneration. Both of which guarantee that they will respond with saving faith. Regeneration, new birth, is a sovereign secret and internal work of God's grace of which we are but passive recipients. Here's what Calvin says of God's imparting grace. It is not violent so as to compel men by external force, but it is still a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit which makes men willing who were formerly unwilling and reluctant. The Spirit of God makes you willing To turn to Christ. Whereas by nature you are children of wrath. Terrified of God. Unwilling to repent and turn to him. Unable. And the spirit restores your will. That's what the new birth is. I hope you're not gnashing your teeth at that doctrine. It's at this point that you should be erupting with doxology and praise for the Lord, for his goodness and mercy. Two final questions and then we'll end. We've seen that it is a spiritual birth that we need because it is a spiritual death that we have by nature, a death that renders us unable and unwilling to choose God or to please him. 
We have a corrupt will that has turned aside from God and it must be remade, reborn, so that it will choose him and turn to him in faith. We've acknowledged that this is a sovereign and secret act of God, that we are passive recipients of it. We don't cooperate in it. We just simply receive it. Now, we ask the question, how do you know if you've been born again? How do you know? Well, remember, Jesus says that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he says that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You know the reference. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. So obviously, this is a very important question. You must be born again. How do you know if you've been born again? Well, I'll offer you two scriptural tests. Each one of these tests deserves its own sermon series. So you get the cliff notes. Romans 8, 15 to 16. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you have the Holy Spirit within you testifying to you that you are a child of God? That's what happened to Lloyd-Jones' wife. She was unhappy, fearful, a child of slavery. And she finally heard, not because she was told for the first time, but because she heard for the first time the goodness and the mercy of God. And her spirit, his spirit testified in her spirit that she was a child of God. Here's a second test. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a A new creature. The old things, this is the important part, the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Have the old things passed away in your life? Have all things become new? Do you have joy in the thought of God? Do you delight in his word? Do you enjoy fellowship with Christ? Or have all things become new for you? Here's our last and in many ways our most difficult question. If you don't have these experiences, the spirit testifying with your spirit, the old becoming new, What can you do to obtain it? What can you do? Anybody brave enough to answer as Jesus answered? You know what he told Nicodemus, right? You must be born again. 
which means nothing that you can do. There's nothing. There's nothing except come to the end of yourself. Come to the end of yourself. That's the point. Have no other place to turn but God and his mercy. Come to the end of yourself. Call out to God as the men on Pentecost called out at the end of Peter's glorious sermon. Remember what they said? Brothers, what must we do? We've heard of our sin, that we killed the Lord and the Savior. What, what must we do? And it was a beautiful, honest question. They were at the end of themselves. They were, it says they were cut to the heart. That question is not always asked in the same way. Sometimes it's, well, Nicodemus, what must I do? What, give me something to do. I want to do something. They'll earn my way to God. What am I not doing right? Help me out. But then there's this other way of asking it, which is the necessary way, the way that is at the end of yourself. Brothers, what shall I do? And then hear Peter's answer. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, and for your children, and for those who are far off, as many as the Lord your God shall call. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be pleased to use this sermon to bring about new life where there was previously death that you would be pleased to make sinners converted, to make sad men happy in Christ Jesus, to make many sons for your house. Would you do that, Father? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.